Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm interviewing Rosine Perlberg about her role as the editor of a book called Psychic Bisexuality, a British-French dialogue, which was published by Rutledge in 2018. Um, Dr. Perlberg is a fellow, a training analyst, and the president of the British Psychoanalytic Society. She's a visiting professor in the psychoanalysis unit at University College London and a corresponding member of the Paris Psychoanalytic Society. She was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where she completed a Bachelor in Science in Humanities and undertook a Master in Science in Social Anthropology before her PhD in social anthropology at the London School of Economics. She has written and edited 12 books, which include Psychoanalytic Understanding of Violence and Suicide, Freud, A Modern Reader, Dreaming and Thinking, The Greening of Psychoanalysis with Gregorio Cajon, and Psychic Bisexuality, A British-French Dialogue, which is the book we'll be talking about today. And she's also the author of a number of other books um, published by Rutledge and and the New Library of Psychoanalysis. And I think, as I mentioned, she's president. I didn't know this when I asked her to to interview for this episode, but she's the president of the the British Psychoanalytic Society. And then most um, kind of affirming for me, after I chose this book to to look at several months ago. It has since won the the American Board and Academy of Psychoanalysis Book Prize uh, for the best edited book uh, for 2019. So um, that was really uh, affirming to me that I'd picked a good book to to interview here. So welcome to the program, Dr. Perlberg. Hello, Philip Lance. Well, hello, and thank you very much for inviting me to be part of your program. Thank you so much for this book. And we usually start with just a a general question. Why did you write this book? Um, That's a a very interesting question. You know, the, the conceiving of this book took place over a number of years. Um, Perhaps I could trace its origins as far back as 1998, because this is when I met Monique Cournu-Janin from the Paris Psychoanalytical Society. At the time, we had started an Anglo-French dialogue in Brighton, uh, organized by Anne-Marie Sandler from the British Society and Aide Feinberg from the Paris Psychoanalytical Society, so Monique and I met in Brighton. Um, at the time, I had edited the book of John Raphael Leff, uh, entitled Female Experience, Three Generations of uh, Women Psychoanalysts on Work with Women. And Monique approached me saying how much she had enjoyed that book. 
uh, I was very pleased because in turn I was uh, familiar with her work on femininity and female sexuality, um, including a rapport for the Congress of uh, French language that she had written with her husband, Jean Cournu. This was, I think, in 1993. So I was delighted that she approached me. And on the spot, we decided to organize a series of meetings between French and British analysts. We decided that we would focus on the theme of sexuality. And we also decided at that time that we would open this dialogue to the candidates. And the first theme we decided also on the spot, which is femininity, because we both had been writing on the theme. Um, another idea that progressively emerged would be that we would read the same books in preparation for the seminars. So I would hold seminars in London, she would hold seminars in Paris, and at the end of the year we would meet discussing clinical work, but we all have read the same uh, preparatory articles and books. And over the years, we met many times, a number of times. Uh, very soon, Chantal Le Chartier-Atlan joined her on the French side, and also Daniel Cazouin-Bonfort. So there was this trio organizing things in Paris. And over the years, we had many encounters. If I tell you some of the themes, perhaps, that we discussed in these encounters, um, the first time, we all met, we discussed femininity, then on the, we alternated between London and Paris. So the first meeting in 1999 in London, we discussed femininity. Two years late in Paris, we discussed femininity, anality, and psychic space. Then in 2003, we discussed femininity in men. In 2006, in Paris, we discussed um, countertransference and masochism. In 2008, we discussed the place of infantile sexuality in the formulation of an interpretation. In 2010, we discussed unconscious fantasies and the actualization of the infantile sexuality in the analytic process. And then in 2012, we discussed bisexuality. Um, indeed, I, I thinking retrospectively, I think uh, I would say that the notion of bisexuality had permeated all of our encounters over the years. Then in 2012, I thought it was time to produce a book. And uh, most of the chapters included in this book have been specially commissioned by me with two exceptions, uh, which are the chapters by Christian David and André Green, because I thought they're both seminal papers on the theme, so I decided to include them. That's roughly the history. It's a long history. And in these get-togethers, were they conducted in English or French or both? And how did that work? Well, we decided that if we wanted people to be totally bilingual, we might have reduced uh, the number of people. So we ideally people would have some kind of understanding of both languages, 
but there was a lot of spontaneous translation uh, that uh, went through the two days. We would meet for two days a weekend. Um, I, as I said, either in London or Paris. Um, we had the, we had done the background reading, the conceptual reading throughout the year. But when we met, we discussed mainly clinical work, informed by all this reading that we had done throughout the year. Um, and then the, the presentations were in English, but we translated. You know, when the, the person presented in English, we would translate into French, and uh, very spontaneously we this, uh, translated ourselves and vice versa. So it was... Uh, it was very open the way it happened. Uh, it didn't have to be bilingual. I have so many questions about how that would all work. It's so unusual to have this coming together on a regular basis of people from different psychoanalytic schools to speak to each other. But I'm going to try to put that on, ask you that later and get more to the, what our listeners might be wondering about, about this book. So what is psychic bisexuality? Andre um, Green, who is a um, well-known French psychoanalyst, now diseased, he once said that although for psychoanalysis difference is sexual, the question of bisexuality is related to the to psychoanalytic theory as a whole. I found this um, statement extremely profound. Now, um, throughout his work, Freud suggests that the contrast between passivity and activity, femininity and masculinity, to be central to his, to his understanding of the structuring of psychic reality in each individual, male or female. Uh, when I was researching for the book, I saw that Freud mentioned the term bisexuality 44 times throughout his work. Um, in the initial phase, at the time of his correspondence with Fliss, Freud was still trying to match his ideas on bisexuality to, to this biological substratum that Fliss had proposed. Uh, it's important to remember that at the time, uh, Freud was attributing to Fliss the discovery of this idea of bisexuality. But I think it's progressively in his work, Freud, Freud's notion of bisexuality acquires a more fundamental and important psychological meaning. He came to consider bisexuality as an inherent characteristic in all human beings. Indeed, in my book, I suggest that every single of his clinical cases may be understood in terms of this interplay between masculine and feminine identifications. Um, for instance, at one point he says, uh, without uh, taking bisexuality into account, I think it would scarcely be possible to arrive at an understanding of the sexual manifestations that are actually to be observed in men and women. I think later he said something even more important, that it is the fact that there, there is bisexuality in each individual that enables uh, the fulfillment of a sexual encounter. Um, 
So I, I think he was pretty revolutionary in many ways. I think he's one of the most revolutionary thinkers uh, in this area of sexuality. Um, so he maintained the inherent psychic bisexuality in both men and women. Um, and he also postulated in each of these cases, in each of his clinical cases, he postulated that there is a fluidity between masculine and feminine identifications in each individual. Okay. If I just say something that I think is very uh-huh. important, because in the first chapter, Christian David, he, he identified two lines of thinking in Freud in relation to the question of bisexuality. One is that the idea that the more sexual difference is asserted, the more bisexuality becomes involuted and virtualized. And then he also says, and this is also very important, that the differentiation, the differential integration of sexuality goes hand in hand with an authentic bisexual fulfillment. And this led him to suggest a bisexualization process that is supposed to take place in any analysis, which is ultimately, the, uh, how shall I put it, is the, is the capacity to identify oneself with the other. Uh, I think I would summarize it in this way. The, the capacity to fantasize, understand, and share the sexual and psych- psychosexual experience of someone of the other sex. Okay. Yeah, I think that's important. Probably a lot of people, when they hear bisexuality in a popular sense, they're thinking of um, the desire the capacity to have a sexual desire for both the male and the female. but And that might be part of it, but it's also this idea of the identifications as male or female, that we can experience ourselves in as both male and female, I guess. And is that correct? I, I think that... I think you're... I, you're absolutely right that the, 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 there is an issue of vocabulary, isn't it? How is it that we define each of the concepts that we are using? Um, and uh, I don't know if we're going to go further into this later in, in this uh, conversation, uh, but I think it's important to uh, underline, and I think we cannot underline this enough, that in psychoanalysis, when when one is talking about sexuality, one is talking about the unconscious, infantile aspects of sexuality. So it's not necessarily what we are consciously aware of, but what is it that becomes revealed in the consulting room, in the process of an analysis. So in a way, I could say that I'm very, I'm not very interested when somebody, that's not the field of psychoanalysis, somebody comes saying, I am homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, whatever it is, the way in which a person defines themselves consciously, because what will be interested, and I think that in a way, that's why people would come for analysis, is to be able to follow through the free associative process what are the unconscious fantasies that each individual would have about their own sexuality. I think uh, 
Jacqueline Rose had a very interesting statement in one of her publications when she said something like, whatever you think you you know about yourself, the unconscious knows better. It's what is revealed, isn't it, in a way that surprises both patient and analyst. Yeah, I. it's funny. It's making me think just yesterday I had a a patient who showed up, a man who identifies as a heterosexual, but he just had both of his ears pierced. And so we we began to sort of explore what that could be about. And I think it gets into this area of um, that we're talking about. But let me ask another question about um, the British-French aspect of all this. The, because I suspect this idea of psychic bisexuality comes more f- from the French side than the British side. And my training has been in, in sort of British object relations. And through the four years of seminars I went through, we didn't study psychic bisexuality. I mean, I'm sure it was in there somewhere, but it wasn't a, a sort of a prominent psychoanalytic concept in my object relations training. Can you say anything about why why that would be and is it is it a more of a french thing than a british thing well it's interesting to hear you saying this because um um it's a concept present in freud you know already in 1999 i think when i wrote a paper about uh, i think it was called the interplay of identifications in the analysis of a violent young man I already had traced um, the, the differentiation because between two different words, one is the concept of identification and the other was identity. And it's interesting because identity is not a concept that's present in Freud, it's a word, but it's not a concept, whereas identification is. And I tend to be very reluctant. You very rarely hear me talking about object or object relations, although obviously I know what you mean, and I'm in a way embedded in the British school as well. But I think the the criticism one could make at times in relation to this notion is it might make the object, so to speak, appear as more fixed than actually it is. So I, I think the notions of identifications, unconscious identifications, the fluidity of identifications, it's very much ingrained in Freud. And this is why in my introduction to the book, I pick up every single of his clinical cases through the lenses of the interplay of identifications. You take any of the examples in Freud, uh, you know, if you talk about, uh, for instance, the wolf man in relation to the primal scene, you know, in relation to his fantasies about the way in which the parents had intercourse together, he, there is a fluidity. On the one hand, he identifies with the father, but he also identifies with the mother and uh, has this, uh, one would say, perhaps a homosexual longing towards the father. Um, so I wouldn't say it's more French than British, I, I would say that is very Freudian, very much, uh, it's at the basis of Freud thinking about sexuality and all these different concepts, isn't it? Primal scene and so on. 
Yeah. So, and I guess a lot of that, um, in some realms of British object relations, that a lot of those Freudian concepts have been kind of superseded by um, something very different in object relations. For instance, the drive. Um, would you say the French are working from more of a drive theory? Um, and the British, a lot of the British, uh, are in more of an object relations paradigm. Um, and does does this book come down on sort of one side or the other of that divide, or how does that work? <laughs> There's so many questions involved. Uh-huh. Well, um, I think I wanted to say first of all is that if you think about, uh, I think this book is a celebration of a dialogue. And I think that's why this unexpected prize left me so happy because in a way that's my trajectory over a lifetime is, is that it's um, embedded in dialogues in many different ways, uh, including when you read about my background is a dialogue between anthropologists and psychoanalysis. That's also part of my, it's a dialogue between disciplines is a kind of geographical dialogue, but it's also conceptual dialogue. So it's a British-French dialogue that is expressed in this book. And uh, I'm talking about people who met over a number of years. And the beauty about it is the way in which we we had an impact on each other so that people very often, they quote each other throughout the different chapters. Now, the concept of drive is very much present in, in uh, French psychoanalysis, but it's also very much present in various parts of British psychoanalysis um, in the way those of us who had, um, you know, if you think about, uh, and it's very much linked to the role of sexuality uh, because Freud, Freud throughout his work puts an emphasis on the on the role of the drives. And the drives, there is a distinction in Freud's work between drives and instincts. So if instincts have a kind of biological basis and the two typical instincts would be hunger and, um, and thirst, I think that those are the two examples that Freud gives of instincts that are very fixed in terms of the of their aims and objects, the difference between that and the drives is the if on the one hand they have the same parametric quality as an instinct, the object is more fluid. There is more flexibility in relation to the object. However, throughout Freud's work, he also indicates how in the interplay between drives and representations, it is only incompletely that the drives uh, are associated to a representation. It is a task that's never fully completed. And I think this is a very important uh, uh, piece of thinking if one wants to understand, for instance, a whole range of psychosomatic illnesses, just to give an example, because uh, these are examples of ways in which uh, there is a severance between the drives and representations. When something is not completely 
transformed into psychic reality. So I'm not sure if I fully answered your question, uh, but uh, these are some thoughts that your question. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, and just as you're explaining it, it does seem to me that you're speaking in the the language of, um, I, I guess I'd say a more classically Freudian vocabulary than a lot of people in sort of the North American relational or object relational uh, schools are familiar with. Um, I think I'm right about that. And so I think this this book is a good introduction for people who haven't read a lot in that realm to to begin to um, to learn uh, some very important ways of looking at um, sexuality and psychoanalysis that they haven't been exposed to. But maybe to give an example, I thought I'd read a little uh, passage that I that struck me partly because it spoke uh, so much about a, a patient that I've seen. Um, so it's it's uh, I think it's in your introduction where you're talking about one of the case studies. I think you review six or seven sort of briefly of uh, Freud's case studies to show how bisexuality is kind of a central concept to each of these case studies. This is the one about Anna O. Um, and you say, so this is a quote, through her symptoms, Anna O. seems to be imitating the sexual act. Her symptoms become like a theater of the sexual act in an attempt to both deny and represent the primal scene and deny the mourning of her incestuous sexual desire. It is also displaying a body that cannot be experienced as sexual and feminine, but only as bits and pieces that ache. So I think maybe that gets into the psychosomatic thing you just just mentioned. But there's a lot in that quote, and I, I guess I thought maybe I'd just ask you to say a little bit about it, reflect on, on what, what you're saying there. Yes, um... It, 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 it's very interesting the way you, you picked up because indeed I can see as you're reading it how condensed it is. Uh-huh. When you say the quote is a quote from myself, isn't it, from that book? Uh, I'm pretty sure, yes. Yeah. Now, I think in the first place, I'm, I'm referring to Freud's idea that hysteria and bisexuality have an essential link. He suggested, for instance, in the studies on hysteria, that uh, hysterical attacks express an experience of rape in which the hysteric plays both roles. And there's a famous quotation of his, then in this case, where he says, "Um, in one case, I observed the patient press her dress up against her body with one hand as a woman, while she tried to tear it off with the other as a man. Uh, so it's a very interesting image, isn't it, that one that referring to. Um, I think it was in the discussion of the case of Katharina in his study with Roya that Freud uh, first related his theory of the primal scene. Uh, he refers to that uh, link, at least in three other cases, um, I think in a letter to Fleas, in a paper on anxiety and neurosis, and also again in his analysis of Dora. 
although there is an alternation Freud's work about whether he's referring to something that really happened, you know, something that a child would have witnessed, for instance, or whether he's referring to an unconscious fantasy. I think he alternates throughout his work in thinking about it's one thing or the other. Now, when I did some research on Anna O uh, many years ago, uh, and this was for a book that Gregorio Cohen edited on the dead mother, and uh, I, I did some research. I read quite a lot about what had written on her. And I, it was the f- first time that I then noted that the issue of mourning, which had not been previously mentioned in the literature as far as I know, And yet I thought that mourning had had an extreme importance in the understanding of the development of the transference and the counter-transference in her treatment of Breuer. And I can give you a few examples. Uh, For instance, so Anna was Bertha Oppenheim, and her maternal grandmother had died when her mother was 10. Her mother, so her mother lost her own mother when she was very young. Then Anao's mother had had three daughters, of whom by 8081, Bertha was the only survivor. Her, her sister Flora died when she was two, four years. Um, so the sister was four, and she died, she was, sorry, she died when she was two. And she died four years before Bertha's birth, birth, in 1859, which was the same year when Freud was born. Um, There's so many many deaths around these two families, Breuer's family and uh, uh, Freud's family, three families, and, and Bertha's family. Uh, that in a way one can see in which the, 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 there was a lot of depressive illness, mourning, uh, uh, permeating this treatment. So if I carry on just a little bit more, uh, Anna O's older sister, Henrietta, she died at the age of 17 when Anna O was eight years old. Uh, one can therefore imagine how Anna O's mother was absorbed by bereavement as far back as her own childhood. Mourning had also been an important uh, element for Breuer because his mother, who had also been called Bertha, had died giving birth to his brother, who was four years younger than himself. So that's when his mother died, and this brother died of tuberculosis at the age of 20, uh, when Breuer was 38 years before he started treating Anna O. So reading all this, I thought that the issue of melancholia had been quite central to that treatment. In addition to looking at this superposition of names, you know, I know that it must have been a common name, but... the <laughs> the way in which Bertha's name was very evocative for Breuer himself, whose own mother um, had been called Bertha. Um, So let me see what is the quotation again. So we dealt with the issue of the bisexuality, the primal sin, the issue of mourning. Um, And I think the issue of the body that cannot be experienced as sexual and feminine 
is the way in which I have come to understand that in the analysis of women by women, the role of the body is absolutely crucial. And the way in which this um, longing for the maternal object can appear in, this, in these analyses in terms of part objects, aspects of the body. Um, you know, in my own chapter, I talked about this, isn't it? The way in which breast, uterus, ovaries, vagina, they become uh, expressed very vividly in terms of part objects, in terms of a fragmentation or at times uh, a lack of integration of the feminine body. The, I think that accounts for the various aspects of this quote. Yeah. I was very interested in that chapter. That's one of the articles, chapters you wrote in the book. It, was it, is it Melancholia and the Analysis of Women by Women? I think that was the chapter title. But, um, melancholia. It, um, I, I call it Love and Melancholia as an evocation of Freud's paper on mourning and melancholia. Um, May I just add something to something you mentioned before? Because when you say this uh, about uh, the Freudian aspect of this book and my own formulations, I, I think it's very much, and this goes back to another point that you made, it is Freud via French psychoanalysis. Because I think nowadays one cannot read Freud without taking into account uh, the French paradigm. And the French paradigm starts with Lacan, and then it's followed by, uh, in many different ways by André Green, Laplanche, Pontalis. I think the whole French psychoanalysis implicitly or explicitly is in a dialogue with Lacan, who obviously had proposed turning back to Freud. Um, so it's a Freudian metapsychology that's very much alive and kicking in France with its central emphasis on sexuality, I think. Yeah, you you have um, a section, I, I'm trying to remember, I think it's a chapter uh, called um, Key Concepts in the Understanding of Psychosexuality. And it, it kind of goes through, not exactly bullet points, but a number of different key concepts. And many of them were were very French in, in the way I think of it. Um, the structuring function of the phallus, jouissance, um, the role of the other in the constitution of the psyche. And I think these would be concepts that will be unfamiliar to some Anglophone readers uh, who don't have a lot of uh, exposure to Lacanian ideas. And maybe in some ways this book is kind of a good introduction to French psychoanalysis for for people who haven't read a lot in it but in it but it could also be a little difficult I think in some ways uh, for some readers Did you find um, difficult well at times I had to like really slow down um, and I guess it's because, again, so much of my training was kind of just 
So, you know, you know, people like Betty Joseph and Herbert Rosenfeld and John Steiner, that group that are really solidly contemporary Kleinians. And a lot of these concepts, um, these French Lacanian concepts don't factor in much at all. So, um, I suppose that a, a very central implication and perhaps question in terms of the whole literature that you're mentioning that certainly influenced me in many ways is whether, and my question to you, it's whether this whole literature has left aside sexuality, that a lot of the contemporary uh, discussions on the issue of sexuality are missing and cannot be understood with this kind of uh, object relation theory language. It's very interesting because uh, in many ways is a, is a departure from Klein. Because if you look at the papers, Melanie Klein's papers and books, uh, sexuality is highly relevant for her as the role of the drives. Um, um, so it is interesting, these different directions that the various schools of thoughts end up going into and whether then when is it that sexuality is uh, left aside and from that perspective then uh, one doesn't have the concepts necessary to understand some of key debates in contemporary in contemporary psychoanalysis i suppose um i i think for me one of the special attractiveness of Freud's, of Lacan's ideas in relation to Freud, is his denunciation of the appropriation of psychoanalysis by other disciplines, say biology, sociology, even psychology, because according to him, the object of psychoanalytic knowledge cannot be reduced to any of the other disciplines. And, and it's very refreshing for me, this going back to some of, of the key concept, concepts present in Freud because of his revolution. It was a revolution, wasn't it? And the, the discovery of the unconscious. But some people might say that Lacan has been absorbed by another discipline, structural linguistics. And um, I mean, it seems like you could make the same criticism of Lacanian psychoanalysis, maybe to some degree, the 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 emphasis on on language. Um, so I don't know. It seems like yeah. And, go ahead. And that is a contribution of uh, that's why uh, the book become interesting for me because of the dialogue, isn't it? And uh, in a way, uh, the role of object uh, relation theory is very much present in the group in the book too, and I wouldn't say just in the, in the British chapters, but uh, in many of the French chapters too. So you see the influence of Winnicott and Bion very much present throughout uh, the book. Yeah, and I think that's one thing, reason I value this book so much, and maybe one reason it won this recent prize is um, we don't get a lot of books that help us sort of think from, I guess, by bifocal perspectives in terms of different schools. Um, and I obviously, I'm very interested in that, which is kind of explains a lot of my questioning of trying to like compare and contrast between different schools. But I think your book um, really 
shows us what such a dialogue between these different schools, how it can be done very well and very helpfully. Um, let's see. Uh, I guess, uh, so this concept of psychic bisexuality in some ways would it be fair to say it implicates all of us in homosexuality because it says that all of us have the capacity to identify with both genders or and to have, um, at least in our infantile sexuality, desires for both, um, both sexes. Uh, and I wonder, how does this... I don't know, book resolve questions around sort of optimum outcomes of our our sexual development as human beings. Does it uh, have a bias towards heterosexuality or homosexuality or is are those equal or I, do you have anything I, to say about I, that? I think the book would have failed very much if it was uh, going this direction because I think what comes across throughout the book and also in my introduction, and I think each of the chapters, is the way in which sexuality is by definition uh, perverse, polymorphous, containing incestuous desires, that by definition is transgressive, and again, I think this is the most revolutionary contribution brought about by psychoanalysis since Freud. Uh, so in a way, there is no re resolution. Um, when we see each of the individuals who come to our consulting rooms, and it's the, is this, uh, that, that's the fluidity, um, but also the, the nature of incestuous desires that is at the basis of psychoanalytic thinking. I don't think there's ever a resolution in relation to that. Uh -huh. There is something else that you mentioned. I don't know if you want to go into this, but I, you also mentioned the word gender. Yeah. I don't know if you want to go in. I think we should because... The, the 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 word gender doesn't show up a whole lot in this book, but but the idea of of course psychic bisexuality and sexual difference, it almost seems like the idea of sexual difference replaces or is a, a concept of gender. But yeah, maybe you could tell us about that. Um. I think one of the um, issues I try to address in, also in one of the sections in my introduction is a, a differentiation between the concepts of sex, gender, and sexuality. And I think it's, again, one differentiation that feels absolutely crucial in order to try to elucidate the questions and themes permeating the book. So that it's not misunderstood. Um, so uh, activating a little bit my background in social anthropology, I would say uh, that all societies, and this is universal, all societies are faced with the task of differentiating between the identical and the different. 
So I would suggest that sex refers to a biological differentiation that is the base of the cultural attribution of gender roles. This would be an anthropological uh, perspective, isn't it? That all societies take sex as a base for differentiation and attribution of gender roles. I think in contrast, sexuality is at the base of a psychoanalytic theory. And this, as I mentioned before, refers to unconscious fantasies present in the life of each individual. So from this perspective, sexuality is to do with desire, and it's always in conflict with prohibition. So if on the one hand the division of gender roles according to sex is universal, it's present in all human societies, it is nevertheless a task for each individual, perhaps a a lifelong task to, to develop in whatever way the individual chooses to develop. But I think there is a fundamental difference between the concept of difference and differences. Because so that on the one hand, one has sexual difference, and this is to be contrasted with the variety of ways in which people decide to live their lives. And uh, I think a person who has discussed this recently uh, very, in a very interesting way is Juliet Mitchell in a series of uh, conversations that took place in Cambridge. So sometimes I think it's the, it's the vocabulary that one u- is using that needs to be addressed, isn't it? Otherwise, we might be talking about different things, but nevertheless uh, using uh, the same language. The same word. If I if I can, there is a classical example in psychoanalysis. You probably know that, and it's uh, it's that example of Winnicott, when Winnicott is talking to a patient, when and he makes the following interpretation. He says to his patient, something like, "I know perfectly well that you are a man, but I'm listening to a girl, and I'm talking to a girl, and I'm telling this girl, you're talking about penis envy." And if I were to tell someone about this girl, was the response of the patient, I would be called mad. So it's the idea that sexual difference is at the basis of a psychoanalytic understanding of sexuality, but should not be confused with sexual differences, that it's more in the realm of gender. Uh-huh. Okay. I think that's a really good taste of... Um that might stimulate listeners to want to dig more into this book. That's a wonderful quote from Winnicott too. Um, yeah. And you reminded me, Juliet Mitchell has a really good forward to the book. That's again, a little bit dense and, but really useful. I thought um, kind of academically as how we look at these, these issues. I also want to say there was just a um, wonderful chapter by a woman named Jacqueline Godfriend. And, yeah, after I read it, I thought, who is this, this wonderful author? And so I looked her up on PepWeb, and almost everything she's ever written, and she had a lot, um, has been in French. And so I think somehow uh, it's a good example of how you've brought some French ideas and authors to the attention of the English-speaking world. But 
Did you commission that chapter or was that one of her articles that was just, you had it translated for your book? Well, Jacqueline Godfrey is a dear friend and she's from the Belgium Psychoanalytical Society. And she came to every single one of our dialogues. Uh, So she was an integral part of the book. Maybe I should say, you know, uh, this as well, that, you know, that each, the only way we could do this book with all chapters in French, and I think there there were seven chapters in French, is that, and many people, as you say, had never published in English before, is that each author, uh, paid for the translation of their own chapter. And that was my my project from the beginning, whether we wanted to try to put this book together. And uh, I was like the conductor bringing the various instruments together for this uh, symphony. And uh, But the only way we could do it, it was that each person tried to translate their chapters. So this is what happened. And, uh, um, and you're right that many of our authors have not been translated before. Well, we're, we're kind of running out of time, but maybe you could briefly tell us, have you written anything since this book or do you have any other projects you're working on at this time? (laughs) I'm always writing. Uh, Writing is my way of thinking as well. I just published another book entitled sexuality, excess and representation where I continued with some of the themes of this book. Uh, all the chapters, oh, the, and that one was just finished? It's just been published by Routledge. Okay. Uh, I developed the introduction a bit more, um, including uh, a discussion of a wonderful book that I don't know if you read, a book that Susan Faludi wrote no. in the dark room about the voyage of her father's transitioning from being a a man to being a woman. I thought it was a marvelous book, and her sensitivity towards the issue struck me very much, so I included a section on her book, an analysis of her book, and uh, all the chapters are then written by me, so it's, uh, it's not an edited book, it's my own book, where I address the issue of sexuality, excess and representation. So perhaps again, Freud and French and British psychoanalysis and a dialogue within myself. (laughs) That sounds wonderful. I'm going to have to get that one. And who knows, we may have another interview coming up in the future. So we're out of time. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pearlberg. Thank you so much for inviting me, and it's been very interesting and challenging, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. So you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Rosine Perlberg about her book, Psychic Bisexuality, A British-French Dialogue, here at the New Books in Psychoanalysis, uh, a a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.